0: Now let's get
1: on with the show. For the first half hour, our guest will be best-selling author Laura Hillenbrand to talk about her latest book, Unbroken, which, uh, as my readers of my blog will know, is I'm presently listening to, highly recommended uh, the audio version. It's an incredible story of Louis Zamperini, who was an Olympic athlete, a B-24 Liberator bombardier, survivor of being adrift for months at sea, and also a POW under the Japanese Uh, You have about three or four books all rolled up into one. And our guest for the second half of the hour will be Michael R. Caputo of the Intrepid Project. And he's going to be here to talk about efforts that he and a lot of other good people are trying to do to bring some shipmates home that um, have been waiting for about two centuries to come home from Libya. But let's get on with our first guest, Laura. Laura, you may recognize her name. She was also the author of the very popular and successful book, biscuit, But her latest book, Unbroken, uh, as of this week, is still number nine on Amazon in general and number two in a subject dear to the listeners of MidRats I Know, Military History. Laura, welcome to MidRats.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: And thank you very much for coming on uh, this Sunday afternoon. Just to, to kind of set a baseline, I know as, a, as an author, the success of Seabiscuit must have been Really rewarding. And coming off of that, what attracted you to the story of Louis Zamperini?
2: It was sort of an interesting way that I came upon this story. It was actually Seabiscuit that led me to Louis. I had never heard of him, um, but while I was working on Seabiscuit, um, I was going through old newspaper archives from the 1930s when Seabiscuit was the biggest sports hero in America. And there were all kinds of articles uh, run at the same time of this running phenom, a teenager in Southern California named Louis Zamperini. And I kept reading them while I was doing my research and was fascinated by him. He ended up going to the Olympics as a teenager to run in the 5,000 meters. And later I came upon what happened to him uh, after the 1930s, after Seabiscuit's career um, in the war. And I was quite fascinated by it. I wrote his name down in my research notebook. And when I was done with Seabiscuit, I... Uh, tracked him down he was still around and as he is today and i called him up he told me his story and i had never heard something so breathtaking and i i knew i had to write this book
3: well let's let's talk about his youth a little bit you uh i think he, he would have been described or maybe was described as a delinquent can you can you talk about how he grew up
2: yeah, Louie was about the worst kid you can imagine. Um, he was uh he was absolutely impossible. He would break into his neighbors' houses and steal their food and uh he he was constantly stealing things all over his town, he was always getting stopped by the police, um, he was brawling, he was just, just a difficult kid and uh it was running that turned him around actually. His his brother thought the one thing my little brother has is getaway speed and uh he he cultivated that in louis and and they discovered that Louis was not only a good runner, he was one of the greatest runners in american history and um set the uh the world record in the mile for for a high school student and uh just kept going from there and made it to the Olympics at only nineteen years old uh the youngest distance runner to ever make the team and and performed beautifully there he was actually um Hoping to make the Olympics in nineteen forty when he would have been a really mature athlete and would have had a shot at a gold medal, but the the Olympics were canceled because of the war, and he went into the air corps and his whole life changed.
1: I think the um one of the the when I started reading the book, I never thought I would do this, but I think as many people do who um who have young children, especially those who have lots of sons or a lot of people that are under a lot of stress because nowadays, um, especially young boys with uh, energy and focus problems, they try to classify them. They try to label them, and um, there's there's a lot of arguments where we're over-medicating our kids. And I think the first part of of Louie's story should really be something that those people, even if they don't have an interest in in the rest of the book, should read. Simply, I, I think that's a great example of uh, sometimes you just got to find the right thing for something to focus on. And I also thought another inspirational part of the story that you brought out was um, the athlete in him. and Because at 19, doing what he did, and I thought you explained it real well in the book, that for the type of, of distance running he was doing, people really don't hit their prime until their mid-20s. And of course, you know, 36 plus 4 is 1940. So he would have been, I believe, was it 23 or 24 at the 40 Olympics that went from Tokyo and then was supposed to be in Helsinki, uh, and none of that took place. But he continued to try to to keep in shape and to keep that focus um, all the way up into the point that when he was in a POW camp, the fact that he was Olympic they uh, almost used that against him. H- how did the, that that running and that, that feeling, that attitude, how did that sustain him through it, all these experiences he went through?
2: I think, for one thing, running taught him how to suffer um, because he, his event in 1936 was the 5,000 meters, which he described to his mother as a 15-minute torture chamber. Um, he hated it, but he was very good at it. Um, but it, it taught him how to put up with pain in his body and take punishment, and and boy, he was going to need that in the war, in in combat, uh, in his plane crash, in the aftermath of his plane crash when he was out on the ocean for 47 days, and then most of all in POW camp where the Japanese tormented him. And I think it also sustained him because it was his dream, and he spent so long as a captive of the Japanese and suffered so badly, he needed some way to emotionally... Detach himself from the situation he was in, where he was starving to death and he was uh, very, very sick um, and not believing he was going to live out the war. Um, he would take himself out of that and imagine himself running again, which is what he really wanted to do. And it, it kept him going. It kept his heart beating. He he could he could get out of the camp for a little while and he'd be up on the podium at the Olympics, and uh, it it really helped him.
3: How did not to not to steal everything from your book, but how was it that he went from the from the running to becoming a a, a, a bombardier on a B twenty four? Can you kind of set the stage for for the for that? He
2: was um he was training for the nineteen forty Olympics and he was he was really going great guns at the time. He was one of the two or three fastest milers in the world at that time and, and he was very close to the world record getting better all the time he had a great shot at meddling in 1940 or possibly even winning a gold but history was turning and uh uh everything changed when world war ii broke out in in europe um they they were going to start drafting people but if you enlisted before you were drafted you could choose your service so he and his friends all signed up for a service and he decided to go air corps um, and uh, they made him a bombardier he didn't want to be one they, he tried to train as a pilot and he washed out as most people did it was he, he was squirrely uh, in the cockpit and uh, they they put him in as a bombardier and he ended up be, being an extraordinarily good bombardier um, very very accurate I have all his test scores and they're quite amazing um, but it was it was a big change for Louis he kept training while he was Stationed on Hawaii, and uh, he was still running faster than almost anybody else in the world while running circles around the runway at, at uh, Hickam Field. So he's an impressive guy.
1: Another part of the book that I thought added a lot of depth to it, um, you know, especially though it's nothing compared to World War II. At least for those that are in our all, our all volunteer military, we're into a decade of war. And uh, most of us who have had a recent affiliation with the military, we know people have done four or five deployments. And the family is so important and how that interaction happens, especially the connection between a son and a mother. And in very, not even large families, but the ones that are very cohesive, the attachment you have to your siblings and you know nowadays we do have a good system of you know family support centers and notifications uh when somebody is is killed or missing but back in World War two, simply because of economies of scale technology, and habit, it was very, very cold in the way families were notified but just like their their son and brother Louis. The Zamperini family, the way they dealt with his missing, and he's actually, uh, not to, again, spoil too much from the book, uh, declared dead, they reacted in a very interesting way. Uh, in your research, was, was how they reacted as a family, was that normal, or was that something that was almost exceptional to the Zamperini family?
2: I don't know whether it was, in that I didn't research a lot of other families. I certainly researched the families of the other men on the plane. And what, what happened, um, which was typical, their plane disappeared. No one knew what happened to it. Um, a message was sent to the families saying that their sons were missing, um, and they, they gave almost no information. It was the same message sent to everybody. Um, and It was sent after, I believe, seven days. Um, after that, there was nothing for a year. Um, And then there was just a message saying they were declared dead. Um, And, in fact, Louis, the pilot, and one other man had survived the crash. Um, But in terms of the Zamperini family, they were very, very close, and they just felt right from the start that Louis wasn't dead. Um, And they, they all talked about it. They were all extremely stressed because... In a way, it was worse to believe he was alive, because if he was alive, he was out there somewhere, and they couldn't help him, and he was probably on the ocean or he was on an island somewhere. And they they talked about how they would, when the war was over, they were going to get a boat and just go from island to island over the Pacific until they found him. But um, what his siblings told me is they just still felt him. They just felt that he was alive. There was a sense inside him that, that... he wasn't gone, and so they kept believing it. I know some families accepted that someone was gone because it was unrealistic to think someone was going to survive out there, but not the Zamperini's, and they they maintained right to the end of the war that he was still alive until they learned that he was.
3: Well, you know, you you set up uh, one of the great sea survival stories, and probably one of the lesser known. But uh, he he was on a, a small raft with uh, two other men for what, 46, 47 days before he's rescued. Could you kind of talk about that a little bit? It,
2: it was really extraordinary. It's it, um, probably to this day no one has ever survived anywhere near as long on a small inflatable raft, um, but but uh, two of them did. One man did die in the course of the journey on the 33rd day uh, because they were starving to death and they were getting almost no water. But they had to use a lot of ingenuity to survive out there. They um, and Zamperini was uh, sort of the leader of this. He, they took the air pump cases that were stored in the side of the raft and they made them into kind of bowls to catch rainwater. And and that was how they they barely got enough water to drink. Um, they figured out how to wrestle sharks on board the raft and. They used a pair of pliers that they had on the raft to cut the sharks open and eat the, the liver, which was the only thing they believed was edible on them. Um, they, Louis tied fish hooks to his fingers and caught fish by grabbing them. They caught birds that landed on their heads. Um, and over the course of this journey, they actually were attacked by the Japanese. Um, a bomber came and strafed them for quite a while, did did many passes overhead, and Louis had to actually dive overboard and hide under the raft. Um, it was an absolutely extraordinary journey. One man did die, but Louis and the pilot made it uh, to the Marshall Islands, where they were unfortunately captured immediately.
1: I think you know that's the the other part of the story, um, and it kind of brought me a flashback to something I had read literally decades ago, as a, as a teenager when I read the story of Pappy Boyington. He uh, he wound up and eventually at that uh, that horrible uh, prison camp where they kept a lot of high-profile people that I'll ask about later. But he also discussed the, the various Japanese and their treatment of the POWs. Uh, and besides, I believe it was on Kwajalein, there was one Japanese uh, guard who happened to be a, a Christian, strikingly, who was uh, helpful to them. But the the vast majority of the treatment he got is just almost hard for the modern mind to understand. After the war, um, did Louis Zamperini, how did he come to terms with the Japanese? And and has his attitude and thoughts toward the Japanese evolved any since then?
2: Well, he had, like a lot of former POWs, he had tremendous emotional problems when he came home. He had been so tormented. Um, especially by one particular guard that they nicknamed the bird who singled him out and and just uh, was ghastly to him throughout the war. Um, I don't know that Louis had a problem with Japanese people in general, which many POWs did. Um, It was just difficult for them to hear the Japanese language. It was difficult for them to see Japanese people because they had been so traumatized. For Louis, his resentment and his trauma was focused on this one man, the bird. And when he got home his life fell apart he became an alcoholic he was having flashbacks he was having these bizarre experiences where he would feel lice on his skin and it wasn't there and and his marriage fell apart and he focused on the bird and he wanted to go back to Japan and actually murder him and he devoted his life to finding the way to get money so he could go back there and kill him and I'm not going to give away what happened but something happened to him to completely change his way of thinking um, about his war experience and about the bird in particular, but he was able to find forgiveness and find peace. and And he's now 94 years old, and he he loves the Japanese people. He's he's completely at peace about it.
3: Out of the out of the many lessons that we should have probably learned from our uh, POWs who came back in World War II, we, we seem not to have learned the the uh, PTSD uh lesson uh can you, is is there a connection here that we should have made and, and didn't make
2: in after world war 2 and i'm sure after world war 1 also it one of the great tragedies to come out of the war is that many many people um servicemen were just terribly traumatized and and they were suffering terribly and the military had no idea how to deal with it and it wasn't taken very seriously. This was consistent with all the POWs I interviewed. They just couldn't get any help. Um, it's much better today. But I, I did a great deal of research on the long-term emotional effects of being a prisoner of war, and, and it was staggering how bad it was, How what percentage of these men became alcoholics. Um, in one study, it was 80% of them. Um, especially men who were held by the Japanese. It was much worse for them than those held by the Germans. Um, And one thing that became very clear to me in working on this book is that this is something we have to take every bit as seriously as physical injuries because these men, in fact, are physically injured. I think their brains are changed by the experience. And we need to respect that and give them as much help as we possibly can, not just in terms of what the military does, but as a society, how we receive them back, and uh, how we respect the suffering that, that many of these people endure when they come home, both from being prisoners of war and just being in the service, being in combat.
1: The um, I think that that's one of the things, as is, is listening to the book. Uh, listening can be a little bit of a different experience than, than reading the book, Uh, but uh, the book's going to keep me great company while I spend a lot of time on the road, that when you read the story of Louis Zamperini, it it literally reads like a piece of fiction, but it's true, which leads into a topic. I mean, there are so many stories out there that are factual, true, well-documented. You have the ability to research them Uh, that just don't get told, much less within the living uh, time of somebody, and when you see pictures of Louis Zamperini um, in the last few years, there's a great picture of him standing in front of a b24, a big old smile on his face. He's wearing his jacket the whole nine yards when When you started researching and you got in touch with with Louis Zamperini, was he surprised that that somebody wanted to tell his story, that you wanted to tell his story and the, the breadth that you covered it? Uh, what was his reaction when you, when you started talking to him
2: he was he wasn't surprised in that he's actually been going around ever since the war he, he's a public speaker now that's pretty much his career and um so he, he has a lot of interest in his life when when he goes anywhere people want him to tell his story so he's accustomed to that and he's he's certainly not uh surprised that anybody wants to tell his story um it it is to me the most extraordinary true story i've ever heard um and he was he was wonderfully cooperative about it he gave me every bit of of memorabilia from his life going back to childhood so i really had all kinds of letters and photographs and everything to work with diaries and um it 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 ended up being very interesting in that uh in going into his life from the point of view of being a biographer Um, I was looking at a lot of other sources, talking to a lot of people who knew him, um, going through documents and things uh, that recorded what had happened in his life, and I ended up learning a lot of things that he didn't even know himself, and so we were having these wonderful conversations where he couldn't wait to hear what I had discovered that week, Um, and that was a big thrill for him. There's a lot of questions that had been in his mind all these years that I was able to answer for him, and and so it it was really a thrill for us to work together.
3: When, when you write a biography like this one, um, what do you take away from it? Do you, do you, does it does it make you a better person, or what? What is the reaction that you have as a, as an author, Go, uh, working with a man like this?
2: Sure, this particular one. I I'm I have never been in the military and uh, have not known very closely anybody in the military, and so this was a real immersion for me in the experience of men and women in World War II in every part of it, in training and in the Air Corps and in air combat and then for prisoners of war and and for for people who ended up on rafts, which actually happened all the time, Uh, so many planes went down. Um, And so I got to really get the texture of it, the feel of it. I almost feel like I was there myself, getting these stories from so many different perspectives and hearing physically and emotionally what people went through. So... I came out of this absolutely in awe of what these people had endured for the sake of the safety of the world. And this this was an extraordinary generation of people who gave all of us such great gifts, and so I, I will be forever changed by that and forever grateful.
1: I thought there was a, a, a little tinge, you know, nothing that is, is shocking, but when you're reminded of it, you always kind of nod your head a bit is the the incredible waste of war in World War II specifically. I, I can't remember his name, uh, but an interesting data point he brought out in the book about the 36 Olympics is the fact that for the 5,000 meters, it was dominated by the Finns. And, of course, the Finns took World War II two in the teeth uh, right from the beginning. And the, the great competitor in that Olympics uh, was actually killed during the war. And I'm sure because of the age that you were looking at with those athletes, a lot of Louis, uh fellow athletes also found themselves in the war. And there was a comment about the Japanese in the 36, how they were actually the most popular people to be with in the 36 Olympics uh, because they were always given the gifts. And I've, I've worked with the Japanese military, and they always give you the best gifts. or still like that. Um, does – Does Louis still have many of the people that he competed with and ran with in the 36 Olympics that are still with us? And how does that impact his life compared to his uh, experience in the military as a POW?
2: I don't believe that any of the people that he knew at the Olympics are still around. I interviewed a couple of them, and I believe they have both since passed on. Quite a few of my interviewees, 13 of them, have died since I finished working on the book. So there is just there's no connection left for him to to that time and those people they're they're gone. And actually just a few days ago I uh I called him up to let him know that uh his best friend from the war has just died last week, um Frank Tinker, uh who's a, a fairly big person in the book and and Louis's reaction was I'm the only one left. And it it's it's true they they are they are gone those people and especially those from the 36 Olympics cuz that was such a long time ago now. Um but it's uh it's It's a generation that's rapidly retreating into history now there's there's not a lot of them left
3: when when you uh started this book how how long did you envision it would take and and how long did it actually take?
2: <laughs> well, um, I guess I didn't think a whole lot about how long it would take i'm I'm one of these people who would just i just decide I'll go until the trail runs out i I like to taste down every tangent I go a little wild with research I'm obsessed with it. So I, I don't know that I thought this will take me two years or three years. It ended up taking seven. Um and Louie was very patient. Um and it was it was worth it. I, I would have gotten it done sooner but I, I I had some serious health problems and I had to back off a whole lot and my publisher, Random House, was wonderful about that. But um it I really did need all of that time to to research and tell this story uh, as three-dimensionally as I could. There was so much to know, and there were so many people to talk to, and there's World War II has marvelous documents all over the world. Um, there were things from the Norwegian Maritime Museum and things in Canberra and things in Oslo, and there was a lot to find. So it, it, it took me a long time, but it, it was worth it, and it was a great project to work on. I loved it.
3: Well, uh, you've listed all the places I'd like to visit, <laughs> and did you did you uh, what what kind of projects do you have now? Are you, are you working on another book, or, or what what are you up to?
2: Well, I after the book came out, I started hearing from many many um, children's librarians and teachers who want to see this book made into a young reader edition for kids around eleven years old um, to introduce them to the Pacific War, which is almost never taught in our schools. I mean World War II to the American school kid is Europe. Nobody seems to know that actually there was a more hellacious war going on in the Pacific. So now what I'm doing is is I'm adapting it for a younger audience, um, and I do have another project in mind after that, but I'm not telling. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we we can't crack that code. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, yeah, that, that, uh, writing for kids would would uh, is, is that have you started that yet? Is it is that much more of a challenge than you thought it might be?
2: It's, um, I'm enjoying it a lot. It's, um, when I write, I'm always thinking about my audience. I'm always trying to anticipate what, what do they know and not know about this subject, and and how am I going to need to explain it to them so that they will understand it. And it's a completely different task to envision the same story told to someone so much younger. So um, it's it's a very interesting way to approach the story. I'm enjoying it a lot. It's, it's, um it's a lot of fun to think about how I can translate this story for kids who know less about things um, that happened at that time, and uh, I'm enjoying
3: it. What, uh, you, what, you one of your earlier answers kind of raises the question, why, out of all the books that have been written, why are we so focused on, on the war in the Atlantic and in Europe instead of one, what actually happened in, in the Pacific War?
2: It's... You know, it's hard to say. You know, I don't really know why that is, because it. if you do the research, you start realizing that the war in the Pacific was just, just horrendous. It was just so difficult. Um, and we do, one of the principal things that come out of it was a whole lot of people were held prisoner of war and went through these terrible experiences. And I think when people are as traumatized as these men were, they don't end up, talking about it all that much. This was a consistent thing with former POWs. They didn't want to talk. Um, and I, maybe that's part of it, and maybe it's part of it also with the the uh, men who were in combat. Uh, you know, I don't know that you want to talk about what Iwo Jima was like or Okinawa. Um, so maybe that was some of it. And maybe it was also um, that the Holocaust was such an exclamation point on the war that it drew more attention to Europe. I'm not sure though. It's that's a very interesting question, but it is consistently true that people know the European war far better than the Pacific war.
1: I thought that was uh, another great thing uh, about your book is to bring attention to that Pacific th- theater. I know, you know, HBO last year did The Pacific that tried to do for the Pacific what Band of Brothers did for uh, the European theater, but it was such a different war such a brutal thing and and it almost uh i know a couple of people have said and people look at you funny when you when you put it that way but you know the nazi pow camps were vacation camps compared to what the japanese did to their prisoners of war and i think it's a a a great thing to bring attention to um uh theater that, that like you said is is in the background and over in the chat room and plus a couple of commenters uh that have emailed me since i put up the post about the show um uh, the question they're asking is, what are the what what is the opportunity or the chances here that we might see unbroken made into a movie? Has anybody been talking to you about it? Because it, it like I said, it almost reads like fiction, but it's true.
2: The uh, the chances are very very good. Um, Universal Pictures has um, optioned the movie from me, um, the the rights to to tell it as a movie. Um and they have a, a director lined up and a writer lined up and uh it it has financing so I think at this point they're they're looking for somebody who can do the most difficult thing which is play Louie. Um and uh but it, it looks very, very good that a movie will be made and I'm I'm excited, Louie's very excited. It it should be interesting.
1: Yeah, that's gotta be exciting, especially for a California boy like himself to uh have the neighborhood <laughs> industry do that for him.
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, I tell you what. Well, I've uh, really enjoyed talking with you this half hour, and again for all the listeners, um, and this is this is all gratis. Me saying this, you, you really should get the book, whether you want to read it or you want to listen to it. Uh, it's a true story that reads almost unbelievable uh, about a really unique person and the experiences he went through. And I think through his story, Laura, and something we've kind of touched on here, it brings attention to all those people. Uh, that served in the Pacific, whose story is relatively unknown and uh, perhaps what will, will bring a little bit of attention to the service and sacrifice that they and their families went through through that incredible period of time whose people who participated are leaving us every day. And uh, I wish you the, the best of success, and we'll look forward to your next publication, too. Hopefully Thank it won't be so in seven years.
2: for having me on. <laughs> Thank you, Laura.
3: It's been very nice talking to you.
2: Thank you.
1: And just as a reminder for all of us that are joining us live or on the record, this is Sal from the blog, Commander Salamander, along with my co-host, the Evergenial Eagle One from Eagle Speak, and this is Midrats. We just got through uh, with a great 30-minute conversation with the author, Laura Hillenbrand, uh, discussing Unbroken, her latest uh, book, just an incredible story of Louis Zamperini and his experiences going uh, growing up in California all the way through his experiences World War II and more. And we're going to uh, take a pretty sharp tack here, but it's on a, a similar topic, and one that I mentioned on some of the promos to the show, is we have the World War II generation as they leave us, and you know rightfully so, they've uh, received a lot of attention recently as they are leaving us. Um, but the story of this country and those that have fought and served this country is known and both unknown. And uh, one of the tragedies of time, uh, especially if you have a culture that doesn't emphasize history, is with each passing year, people's stories be forgotten. And one thing that uh, in the post-Vietnam era everybody got used to is you see the POWMIA flag up there, and a lot of people say a lot of words. Um, And there are some very good people that are doing some great actions to bring people home, uh, to let their families bury them in peace. Uh, But it's also usually very focused on the living memory. But for those that went to the school at the Naval Academy know, there's a thing called the Tripoli Monument that was uh, rescued um, back by, I believe, the class of 1947 started the push to rescue it that tells and uh, commemorates Uh, Six officers, not everybody, but six officers who died uh, off Tripoli during the Barbary Wars. And there's more to the story than that. And our guest who discuss it will be Michael R. Caputo of the Intrepid Project. If you're not familiar with the Intrepid Project, you can go over to my my home blog, uh, click there, and read about the background. We brought Michael in today to talk about some of our shipmates. Uh, some in known and marked graves but others that are in unmarked graves up uh, in Libya and a drive that he and a lot of other people are pushing forward to hopefully bring them home. Michael welcome to Midrats.
4: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: And Michael um kind of like what you and I talked about before when we last talked, you know some some people who are familiar with the you know the shores of Tripoli and Maybe some people walking by have actually read what's on uh, the Tripoli monument there in Annapolis. Um, They know about some of the people, but they don't know about those that we have left behind. If you could please just just brief the the listeners on why the Intrepid Project exists um, and who we're trying to bring back home.
4: Uh, certainly. Thanks again for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be on online with you. Uh, the You know, the Barbary Wars uh, that, that were uh, our first naval wars of our nation uh, were taking place at the very beginning of the 19th century. And, uh, in fact, uh, the song, uh, the, the Marine Hem, talks about those uh, battles on the shores of Tripoli. In fact, uh, Tripoli was the name of the entire nation of Libya at the time and uh, uh the uh the, the marine hem refers to another battle, but there was which was actually a marine battle of uh, a sergeant who was historic and heroic in those times, but also uh, there uh, right offshore in Tripoli, uh where it was a naval battle that was historic in, in, in the fact that it was the very beginning of our navy and uh, Thomas Jefferson uh sent our navy to uh to defend our merchant seamen from uh pirates uh who were living in uh libya uh and in fact uh the be- the uh harbor of Tripoli, which is the city of Tripoli now, was the focus of many of the naval battles. The pirates of Tripoli had uh smaller faster uh corsairs who so could uh sail uh nimbly through shallower uh uh areas with the american fleet uh you know, we all have uh heard about old iron sides and there was also the Philadelphia and other great ships of the era. Uh, they had very deep drafts, and the pirates would duck out of the Trip- Tripolitan Harbor and harass our fleet. Our fleet was at anchor and would try to fight these battles with these uh, men from uh, from what we know now as Libya uh, with limited success. Uh, but in 1804, there was a secret mission uh, of 13 U.S. Navy sailors, and we believed they would be considered uh, seals in today's parlance, because there wasn't a Seal Corps, of course then. But uh, 13 men volunteered to take a captured Libyan corsair in under sail at night. But it was packed all the way to the gunwales with uh, TNT and ordnance and and uh, 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 all kinds of anything that would explode. It was in fact a floating gun, sh- a floating a bomb. They're going to take that into the Tripolitan Harbor, sail it directly into the center of the pirate fleet, uh, abandon ship, row away at great speed uh, while a wick that they lit would blow up and destroy all the ships in the Tripolitan Harbor. Remember, this was at the end of the uh, summer battles of Tripoli in 1804. It was a heroic uh, attempt to end the entire war at the close of the summer because in those days, in the winter months, we didn't do much fighting. Those 13 men were lost. Their bodies washed up on shore. Uh, the, 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 the Tripolitan king, the Beshaw, the king of the pirates, um, had their bodies dragged through the streets of Tripoli, then fed to a pack of wild dogs. And we had uh, nigh on uh, 300 American prisoners of war, who he was holding on to at the time, who begged him to... Uh, Allowed, you know to stop the, the, the inhumanity and allow them to bury these 13 men, two officers and 11 seamen. Uh, they were indeed allowed to bury them. They buried them on the shore of Tripoli. And, in fact, they buried them in two different graves because, one, the initial grave that they dug was not deep enough. They had misjudged it. They, drove, they dug two graves, two mass graves, and buried these 13 uh, naval heroes who we would today consider uh US Navy seals
0: those gentlemen
4: still remain there
3: today and they and uh not to uh the, the purpose of your project is to do what
4: well at the end of the day uh uh these men were not buried honorably in fact uh they were buried like animals not like men um and as you know in those days if you know your naval history um these missions uh were not just for uh uh you know to, they weren't just missions for your country. Back then men fought for glory. And uh, they went uh they they gambled everything, they volunteered for a, a a horrible mission. Uh they uh they were uh met an inglorious end and they were buried like dogs
0: and mass graves
4: and, and uh I first met in two thousand and five the people of Summers Point, New Jersey, uh who were uh, bound and determined And had been bound and determined for 200 years To bring home The master commander of the intrepid His name is Richard Summers He was the commander of The, the ship that was Exploded in Tripoli's harbor And uh, since 2005 Our our uh, mission has been uh, To bring back all 13 men We know where they are now uh, We didn't know where they were at the time uh, We know where they are now and We want to bring them home and bury them with honor here in the United States,
1: I think the you know the, the 2005 I think should have had everybody's ears perk up because this effort you know predates uh, the present conflicts that we see in Libya. Could you please take a moment and talk about the efforts with that um, the organization was having and the families were having with the Gaddafi family prior to the uh, latest altercations that have been taking place.
4: I'll take you back a, a, another step in fact, um the efforts to repatriate these men began almost the moment that they washed ashore uh the the, the two of the of the officers uh uh Master Commander Richard summers and Lieutenant Henry Wadsworth were from prominent uh, revolutionary war era families um, Their families moved immediately to start trying to bring their their bodies home in fact, there was uh a declaration of peace sometimes uh, uh, soon thereafter, and the, the, the Wadsworth family and the Summers family fought very hard to bring their men home, their boys home. But it never happened. And in fact, uh, what was then the War Department, what was then the Navy Department, what was then the State Department, refused to cooperate with the idea of bringing these men home. It just wasn't going to happen. The families, the Wadsworth family and the Summers family, fought on, across 200 years to bring their their boys home, and it just never worked. It would wax and wane, of course, after 40 years of trying and finding no support in Washington. Uh, they would lose heart, but then someone would be born who who was uh, dedicated to bringing the, these men home and became dedicated after learning their own history their own, uh, of their own uh, forebears. And uh, this went on and on for 200 years. But in 2005, I was actually working on a... Uh, a project in Summers Point, and I met some of the, the the newest generation of people who were working to bring these men home, uh, the descendants of Richard Summers. Now they reminded me that Henry Wadsworth, the second in command of the Intrepid, is the uncle and the names and the, the, the namesake of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet laureate of America, the author of the Ride of Paul Revere and so many other historical poems of that era. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was named after his uncle because his his sister, Henry Wadsworth's sister, was getting married, was engaged to be married when he was killed and she was heartbroken. And in fact, uh, many thought she was too depressed to go on, but she she went on and she married and she had a son who became Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Their family was deeply involved. But in 2005, I was reminded of this when I first heard the, I I was told about this fight when I first heard the story. In fact, actually at a, an old Seaman's bar in Summers Point, New Jersey. And at that point, I, I, I asked them, what is, you know, what have they tried to do? And over and over, they had tried to bring back these men through official government cha- uh, channels. And it never worked. They went to the Navy Department, to their congressmen, to the White House. And went over and over, across two and seven years, and nobody ever did anything. Nobody ever followed through. So I told them, I said, actually, you should try going directly to the family of Muammar Gaddafi number. As you mentioned, Commander, 2005 was when uh, 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 Gaddafi and his sons were trying desperately to court the favor of the United States and the United Nations. They were in the midst of negotiating the forswearing terrorism. They were in the midst of negotiating, uh, giving up on their nuclear program, and we came in at that same time, and I, 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 I signed up to be in charge of contacts with the Gaddafi family, and I spoke to uh, uh, Muammar Gaddafi and his sons, uh, especially Saif Gaddafi, who was the head of the Gaddafi Family Foundation, about this idea. And I told them it wasn't America to Libya. It was the Gaddafi family to the Summers family, to the Wazir family. It was a private effort, uh, not funded by any federal monies, and that we just wanted to come in and get these men and bring them home. And our negotiations with the Gaddafi family started from there. And it actually bore fruit and we were we were quite close to bringing them home.
1: Eagle one.
3: Well, well, um have you have you found their their uh, you know exactly where they're located and you and you and you have a a uh, is there a window now that we can we could possibly get them? Well we, we, uh,
4: we every every year we would you know I started in two thousand and five. we start, I first started uh, uh, talking with the Gaddafi family. In fact, we encouraged them to the point where they they sponsored a state-sponsored excavation of what we thought would be the site where these men would be. We were able to triangulate with information that we gleaned from the National Archives from work of other great historians across the years, and we gave them uh, kind of where we thought historically these men would be buried. And uh, in fact, they sent the uh Dean of the Archaeology Department at Tripoli to lead an excavation and he went there he worked for some time and he found in fact the grave site and We know now through bones and grass buttons of old navy frocks uh precisely where these men are now there's an important note here there are now there were two graves there was the one where they placed all the men and and uh, they found that it was too shallow, and they had to dig another. And the second one, they put the last five men. Those five men were actually discovered when a highway was being excavated by the Italian government. Italy was uh, was kind of the colonial power in what is modern-day Libya in the 30s. Um, they they found the men. They interred them in what is what is now known as the Protestant cemetery. So five of the enlisted men are interred at the Protestant Cemetery, which is a Libyan cemetery that is uh, in, in, in grave disrepair. I mean, there's a lock on the gate. The gate hangs uh, askance, and, and uh, you know, people climb over the walls and through the gate as easily as, as pie. And, in fact, the wall itself is starting to crumble. We have five of our Navy uh, sailors there in a mass grave where they relocated them into a group grave, a shared grave, with a small plaque, and that plaque was uh later dedicated by the uh, a ceremony by the United States Navy and uh the other grave however that still contains the two officers Henry Wadsworth and Richard Summers remains uh on Green Square which is beneath the feet of where uh Gaddafi now has his anti-American rallies when he has these rallies chanting death to America the people that are standing there chanting the 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 common people are Actually, standing on top of our heroes, who are buried beneath their feet under the sand, and they have no idea that they're even there. But we excavated. excavated. We found them in May 2006, uh, but shortly thereafter, uh, Israel got into a war with Lebanon, and the, uh, and the uh, Gaddafi contacts that we were working with said, "Let's cool this off until the Libya until the, until the Israel versus Lebanon conflict dies down." And uh, so we let it uh, we let it cool off. And, of course, uh, now we find ourselves in a situation where there's a massive civil war. Uh, and uh, while we kept, uh, you know, we understand now where the bodies are. We kept our contacts within the Qaddafi the government. We now find ourselves in, in the, the, you know, at the beginning of this year, in a situation where everyone that we had negotiated with uh, was now in disarray. We don't even know where many of these people are, the dean of the... Uh, of the uh, uh, of the archaeology department of the Tripoli University uh, is actually someone we're having a difficulty finding nowadays uh, with the revolution that's going on there. So um, all these years we've been fighting to have this happen, 207 years of many generations fighting to bring these men back. And in April, or I'm sorry, late March of this year, we received contacts from the chairman of the uh, House Select Committee on Intelligence. His name is Mike Rogers from Michigan, a Republican. And he said to us, he said, I understand. Uh, He knew the whole story. He had actually been to Libya as a minority member of the House Intelligence Committee in 2004 and actually discovered the graves himself, the graves that are marked in the Protestant cemetery, and as an Army veteran, decided it was an ignominious end to great American heroes and that one day he was going to do something about it. So he becomes chairman of the House Intelligence Committee this year. January, as, America, as, uh, as uh, they took over the House, and it as it was one of his first personal projects, he wanted to uh, write a law to require the Department of Defense to bring these men home. He wrote that law and passed, uh, I mean, sorry, it went into committee, but um, he got into a disagreement with the United States Navy offices in the Pentagon, and instead of trying to pursue a separate bill, he attached it to the Pentagon budget. And it passed the House, and it's now in the Senate. And while, in fact, the only opponent to this entire idea is the United States Navy.
1: And that, that's one thing that, that I wanted to pull the thread on a bit, because for those that serve, there's a lot of lip service, a lot of words that are said about sailors are our number one priority. We will never leave you behind. You will always remember Et cetera, etc, etc. Um, and politics aside and general bureaucracies aside, one would assume that of all the entities out there that the senior uniformed leadership of the United States Navy would be at the forefront to make sure that the remains of our sailors, regardless of when and where they died, if an opportunity did it itself, would be treated with respect, and if needed to be brought home, would be brought home as if they died yesterday. But that hasn't been the experience of the Intrepid Project. Could you pull that on that thread a bit and try to help us understand why the one entity you would expect to be the most supportive of its sailors is failing the grade?
4: Well, I got to tell you. Um... I guess the families have been dispo- disappointed by the United States Navy for 207 years. Uh, they have inquired, they have fought, they have cried. Uh, uh, Zilpa Wadsworth, uh, the mother of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, wailed uh, and and just cried openly about this in the public, uh, begging for her brother to be brought, brought home. In and, and, and the ensuing centuries, the United States Navy has always said no. And uh, you can understand at the very bottom of this, at the very base of this, especially in the modern, the twentieth and twenty-first centuries, they, they have rededicated themselves to bringing home the men who have died in battle, but they have only really focused on men who died in battle after World, you know, on World War II and, and, and onward. So in fact, we have a Missing in Action and a Missing Persons Office at the Pentagon that's focused on. World War II and afterwards, and uh, included in all of that time period are tens of thousands of American
0: uh,
4: Marines, sailors, soldiers, uh, 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 Air Force airmen who disappeared uh, and have never been found, tens of thousands of them, and the MIA uh, missing persons, MIA MP office of the Pentagon is focused on, on finding those men and bringing them back, and Nothing before World War II. That's the hard stop. And uh, so we had problems, the families had problems all through the centuries trying to to bring the men back. The Navy kept saying no. Then laws were passed, and they focused on World War II and forward. The Navy has said no, but that's because we only look at World War II and forward. So they have had that law or that guidance, that Pentagon guidance to lean back on, and say, well, we'd love to bring them back, but we only bring back men who were lost uh, after World War II. Well, we have now gained the support of the American Legion has voted in favor of this specifically, and they are pursuing this and helping us and guiding the bill in in Washington. Uh, The veterans of foreign wars have joined us, and they are helping guide the bill in Washington. Our biggest battle is in the United States Senate because we've already passed the House. And the bottom line is, we believe that the United States Navy is stuck on no because of one reason. Because they've always said no. They've always said, listen, we know where the men are. They're in a small cemetery in Libya. They're called, it's called the Protestant Cemetery. We have the key to the cemetery. We send somebody there once a month to weed the graves. Nobody actually repairs the masonry surrounding the small cemetery. And nobody guards it, and it's owned by the Libyans. But we consider that to be honor enough for these men, and they actually compare that graveyard to the graveyards, the, uh, the beautiful cemeteries of Normandy, which we own as a government, and we, we take care of as, as a nation. And we honor these men every year, uh, not only with the ceremonies on the, on the anniversary of the Battle of Normandy and all these other places where we have these cemeteries, but we honor them all year long by taking care of their gravestones. And by and by, and by watching over them, just like they watched over us. Somehow or another, the Navy believes that this rundown little cemetery, we all, where five of thirteen men are interred, is honor enough. They don't even talk about the graves that are under the feet of the people who are who are protesting America on Green Square. And we're talking about the majority of the men, the original grave site. And in fact, that's where the commander and his lieutenant are are, are interred. Their bones mixed up like animals. They were dragged through the streets of Tripoli and then fed to dogs. And their families have begged for them to be returned for 207 years, and the Navy doesn't even talk about them. So that's where we stand right now. The United States Navy is actually quietly lobbying United States senators and telling them to vote against this. They're calling them and saying, we really don't want to talk about this in public, but this is not in the best interest of the United States Navy, so we do not support this, and we, don't, we hope that you'll understand that you know, we don't want you to support it either. This bill could actually die in the United States Senate because the United States Navy is stuck on no. And the chief purveyor of that negative sentiment is Admiral Roughhead, who is the chief of naval
1: operations.
4: He's unfortunately in the position where he's the required person who's got to stand up and say
3: no you one Well, I'll tell you. Well, what's the what's what's the path forward here? What uh what do you want to have happen next?
4: Well, um, like I said, the bill to bring these men back to require the Department of Defense to bring them back. If, you know, it's attached to the, to the to the to the Pentagon budget. It's attached to the Navy budget. And they've got agita about it. They've got it's a bitter pill for them. For some reason cuz they're stuck on no. Here's the here's the thing. We've received communication from the, P, uh, from the MIAMP office of the Pentagon that says to us, how dare you put these men ahead of the tens of thousands of men who are missing and that we're looking for across the globe. And here's the point. Number one, they were not buried honorably. They were not buried at sea with an honorable uh, 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 funeral. They were buried like dogs, like animals. Secondarily, they're not missing. We know exactly where they are. So the, the, all the arguments the Navy is making are false. They're 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 complete red herrings. They don't mean a thing. And that's why the bill passed the House with uh, with absolutely no opposition of 435 members of Congress, no opposition. And it goes to the Senate. They suddenly realize that they're going to be required to bring back these 13 Navy heroes, and so they're quietly making calls to key senators to kill the bill. Well,
1: Michael, what need the... Yeah, I think you'll lead into my next question. uh, A couple minutes left here, uh, there's like the short game and the long game. If the listeners wanted to help influence the short game in the Senate, what would be the best thing for them to do? And in the long game, if they wanted to help um, Project Intrepid help get these people home, how can they keep track of progress and help out if possible?
4: Well, we're an un- unfunded organization, a non-funded, uh, ad hoc nonprofit, and we're not out there dunning for money because uh, we believe that, uh, if, uh, here's the thing, at the end of the day, Commander, we, uh, uh, we have uh, uh, a revolution in Libya, and there will soon be a brief window of opportunity to bring these men home. It will be open, and it will be brief. There will be a change of leadership, and we can come in and we can say we want our men home, they're going to give us thumbs up, a green light. We're going to have, you know, 15 months within which to come get them, and we can get them and bring them home. This is not a battle about money. This is a battle about getting the United States Senate to vote yes in the month of September, because our bill is going to be brought to the floor of the United of the United States Senate, our amendment to the to the Pentagon budget in September, and there will be an open debate. Now, what I encourage the listeners of of your of your radio show to do is to call the United States Senator and tell them to support the Rogers Amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA. Representative Chairman Rogers from the House uh, Intelligence Committee, his amendment to to the Pentagon budget that requires the Department of Defense to bring these men home. Call your senator and ask them to please support the vote on the Senate floor in September. Now, if we lose that vote, We still have more fight left in us. And, Commander, I'd love to come on and talk to you about what might happen, but we really believe we've got a strong chance. Go to www.intrepidproject.org. Sign up for updates there. Sign our petition, which you'll find the link at the bottom. That's intrepidproject.org. And we'll keep you up to date. You'll be able to find all the press coverage of our efforts there. You'll be able to uh, understand exactly where we're at, But don't let your senators vote no. Call your senators today and tell them to bring our heroes home. And, Commander, thank you very much.
1: Uh, You're welcome very much. And I encourage everybody, uh, if you have an interest, is to go ahead and take some action. Michael, uh, thank you very much this afternoon for taking time uh, to be with us. Good luck. We'll keep track with you, and we'll keep in touch. And thank you, everybody, for checking in live and those that are coming in archive. I hope everybody has a great Navy day.
3: Thanks, Mike.
4: Thank you. That was great. I really enjoyed it.
3: Molly wrote a neat reply to Irish Paddy Hall. Saying Mike Maloney wants to marry me and so. Leave the friend and pick up,
1: or you'll be to blame. For
3: love has fairly drove me silly, hoping you're the same.